The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. An issue of the Wall Street Journal last week had two front-page stories, one on executive compensation and the other on backdating of stock options. The headline for the first was, quote, Behind Soaring Executive Pay, Decades of Failed Restraints, end quote. The implication being that executive compensation is out of control and seems to resist all attempts to rein it in. As one expert in the article says, curbing executive pay is, quote, like moving jello. When it is limited in one area, it squirts out in another, end quote. Wharton Accounting Professor Wayne Gay is here with me, Robbie Shell, Editorial Director of Knowledge at Wharton, and McCool Pandya, Editor-in-Chief, to share his views on the state of executive compensation in the U.S. Wayne's research areas include executive stock options, stock ownership and incentives, financial accounting, risk management, and firm valuation. Wayne, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you. A number of reasons have been cited for the growth of executive compensation. The bull market of the 1990s, cozy relationships between boards and CEOs, and legislation passed in the early 1990s requiring companies to disclose what they paid their CEOs. The theory here is that the ruling made it easier for CEOs to compare their pay to others and then demand more if they fell short. Do you think executive compensation is too high overall? And if so, what has caused this? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is certainly the million-dollar question uh, out there. It's certainly heavily debated. Um, And, of course, the question is uh, how high compared to what um, and how do we determine these things. And there's certainly a lot of debate within academics. And certainly it's the case that, that yes, there are cases where executives get overpaid, and we've seen examples of those in the the press. I mean, in terms of the, the typical figures that we would see, um, you know, the typical CEO is, is not the CEO that often gets, gets uh, cited in the figures that we see. When we see figures in the press, they're oft, often focusing on the S&P 500 or large firms. And, and there the average, the typical CEO might make 6 to $8 million, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but the typical CEO of a, of a publicly traded firm would make more in the neighborhood of, of 2 to $3 million. Um, and then trying to think about putting that in some kind of perspective. Uh, you know, these individuals are very talented. Uh, they obviously work very hard. Most CEOs are working seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and certainly there are tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of individuals in the U.S. that make $2 million a year. So they're not certainly not unique in that respect. And we can find lots of examples of athletes and movie stars and entrepreneurs and all sorts of folks. And and then the question that, that comes to mind is, you know, why do these individuals uh, command these this pay in the marketplace? We certainly see lots of people commanding that kind of pay, but why these individuals? Uh, they're not great athletes. Uh, they don't perform heart surgery. They show up to office in a suit, uh, just like everyone else. And and for some reason, they get paid a couple of million million dollars. So. You know, thinking about what these individuals do, and, and I know we'll talk a, a little bit more about this uh, as we go on, but I mean, these individuals are running companies that are extremely complex, much more complex today than I think they were 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, most corporations are, have a global aspect to them. Uh, technological change is, is happening very rapidly. Uh, litigation and regulatory environments uh, have become a lot more complex. 
Um, certainly the scrutiny on these individuals is much greater than it was a while ago. And and so I think it's it's clear that these are very talented individuals that could otherwise start their own business or do other things where we know they could make quite a bit of money. And and then the question is, you know, are they overpaid in general? Uh, and and for the the typical individual, I would argue, probably not. But there are certainly cases where where that that's the case. You know, it's very interesting. Robbie referred in her introduction to two stories from the Wall Street Journal. I was reminded about two stories that ran in the Sunday business section of the New York Times. One was a story by Ben Stein, who who said, if you want to make money, you've got to help rich people make more money. And the other was uh, a story, that that was the lead story, uh, about a compensation consultant whose main job is helping CEOs get these fancy packages. So apart from all the factors you described, Wayne, uh, is there almost like an industry that is helping these CEOs uh, become, you know, get more fancy packages? And, and you know, uh, what, what can be done about that? Is that really in the shareholders' interest? Yeah, I mean, these are very complex contractual arrangements that individuals enter into. So when when a corporation's hiring a CEO, that individual probably has many other opportunities and and things that they could do. And if they're going to commit to this organization, uh, they want some stuff in writing. And so the the the, the computations and the just the the legalese gets very complex. And both sides uh, have some expert help in in writing those contracts, deciding what's a an appropriate amount of pay, how to set incentives properly, how to structure retirement packages. And I think if you if you had those individuals writing those contracts without any expertise, without any hiring any expertise, uh, I think you'd have a mess. Um, so so these are like any of us would go out if we buy a house, we get a real estate agent. If we have a legal problem, we hire a lawyer. Uh, I think firms and executives hire expertise to help them in these ne- negotiations. So, you know, although it, it certainly can be that that these consultants have an interest, you know, they have an interest in making money. How do they make money by, uh, you know, doing a good job and getting these executives as much as they can? The execs, experts on the other side have have a different, you know, thing in mind. But uh, you know, they're they're trying to to help these individuals. But but is it is it really hard that hard to find excellent executives who would work for less who would work for compensation packages that just aren't what some people would consider to be in the stratosphere? Yeah, and I think I think there the it, it goes back to you know what is it that's that's unique or what is it that, about these individuals? And so in that question, and, and I hear that question a lot. Uh, in that question is embedded this notion that it just isn't can't be that hard to run a large corporation. There must be a, a long line of people that can do this quite well that would work for a fraction of what these individuals might might work for. And there it's it's just a lot less clear to me. So if, I, if I'm on the board of directors or um, I'm a you know, shareholder trying to make a decision on who to hire, um, what I would think about is, you know, what what is the danger of hiring the second best person compared to hiring the first best person? And if we think about, you know, typical you know, decent sized publicly traded firm, let's say that has a, a market capitalization of about $10 billion. And then we imagined, you know, that the best CEO would outperform the second best CEO by one percentage point, not per year, but just over their entire career. So over their entire career, the best CEO for that job adds one percentage point to the market cap of that company. 
we're talking about $100 million. So if the difference between the best and second best could easily mean hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, you know, I, I can see why if you're a board, uh, you don't want to take the chance that you're hiring the second best person. No, I, I think that what you're saying is, is, is fair in the case of, uh, of a really good CEO, because everyone will agree, I'm sure, that leadership is ultimately what drives growth and value. Uh, I think the, the, the issue that sometimes troubles people uh, is that even in the case of a company where the CEO has you know, failed, uh, a recent example being, say, let's take a company like Bristol-Myers Squibb, where the CEO did certain things that got the company into trouble, the kind of severance packages that these CEOs seem to get for basically leaving a job that they didn't do particularly well seem to be quite generous. And, and I wonder if, you know, what's your thoughts on how to, that situation can be addressed? Well, you know, in many cases, the, you know, no one hires a CEO that they think is going to do a bad job. So ex ante, at the time of hiring, you're hiring the person you think is going to do a good job. Um, and it's very often the case that these that the negotiations over salary, retirement benefits, pension, uh, uh, you know, golden parachutes and those sorts of things, I mean, those happen at the time of hiring in many cases. And so as they're initiating this agreement, this contract, those things are negotiated in. And so at the time of, of departure, um, many times uh, that's not in the control of the board or the firm, that those have been negotiated up front uh, when the board thought that that was the best person for the job. So, Would it um, make sense in that kind of situation to also include some penalties if, if let's say, the, some of the CEO's actions led to the company being investigated by the SEC, for example? Well, most of those contracts do have, uh, you know, d- departure with cause clauses. Um, now, it may, you know, and, and with cause in many cases means you've done something illegal or you've been you've found in violation of some some law. Um, and so you know, maybe what you're arguing is should that be loosened up so that it's a bit more maybe subjective uh, and say, you know, if you've done a bad job, you don't get this if you've done a good job. And. And, and I think what you're saying is that, you know, shouldn't there be some in- incentives? Shouldn't we have incentives with, with uh, carrots and, and sticks, you know, so, so that we provide an individual with an incentive to do a good job? And it's, it's virtually always the case that a departing executive that leaves when the company's done poorly has suffered a financial loss in the tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's primarily because they're required, almost every CEO is required to hold a very large fraction of their wealth uh, in company stock. And so, you know, we see some some retirement pay and, and sometimes it, it can get excessive in some cases, but the typical retirement package might be 60% of the final few years salary or something like that, like what we would see for someone that's, a, say, working in public service. Now, it's a much lo- lower dollar, but a very typical type of package. Um, and so that's the way those plans would get structured. And, and often that gets dominated or swamped uh, by the decline in value of their, of their wealth and their stock and option portfolio when the firm suffers. Wayne, new, new SEC accounting rules will add more disclosure to the value of total comp packages, particularly options grants, which have been critical to performance-based pay for years. Will these new rules have any effect on compensation? 
Um, yeah, and, and the disclosure rules also another thing that, that they are going to do, I think, which will be helpful is they'll bring in some information on retirement packages that, that haven't been there in the past. So I think that's probably a, a useful thing as well. And you know, most of the data, most of the disclosure that the SEC is requiring can be obtained by a, uh, an analyst or a shareholder that, that wants to spend a little bit of time with the financial statement. So, I mean, the very little new information that's just not obtainable elsewhere in the financial statements. I think primarily what the SEC is doing with these new disclosure rules is they're they're making it a little bit more transparent to someone who doesn't have a few hours to spend with these financial statements. So they're they're bringing uh, value of option grants up into the main compensation table. So it's very clear the the dollars that the individual is getting, what the retirement plan looks like, and things like that. So. Th- you know, the fact that, that the, the data is already out there and it's just being sort of moved around in a little bit more transparent way, I don't think that that is going to change the way that CEOs and companies negotiate with each other. Um, so, so the individuals that are signing these contracts, they're not getting any, any new information. I think uh, at the same time, transparency, can, can't, in my mind, can't be a bad thing. So to the extent that you do have situations where the board and the CEO are writing a contract, but they're not independently doing that, they're in cahoots with each other or the CEO has, the, uh, has control of the board, uh, in those cases, making things more transparent will give uh, other people outside of the boardroom uh, the information that they might need to, to step in and take actions when there are abuses. What, what about implications of the new accounting rules for expensing stock options that went into effect about a year ago, a little less than a year ago? Yeah, that was a, a huge thing. Um, uh, it was something that uh, the financial accounting standard setters had been trying to do for uh, more than a decade. Uh, and the basic idea is that uh, if I pay an employee a uh, dollar of uh, salary, a uh, dollar of stock, or a dollar's worth of options, uh, the dollar of salary and the dollar of stock was treated as a business expense and lowered the firm's earnings. But a dollar of options was treated as uh, not an expense at all, and in fact didn't show up in the financial statements at all until those options were exercised. And so there was a very large component of of, uh, of compensation that simply wasn't showing up uh, in the firm's income statement. It wasn't treated as a deduction uh, from earnings. And so now that's been changed. Um, it was a tremendous political battle, but now it has been changed, and I think the accounting is, is much better for it. Uh, as to whether you will see uh, changes in compensation practices because of it, again, it's one of those things where the, the data was in the financial statements already. And so for anyone that cared to flip three or four pages further into the, the, to the proxy statement of the annual report, they could get this data. Um, so again, I, I don't see it drastically altering things, other than the fact that I think that there are some firms out there that were... Uh, possibly using options as a form of compensation when they might have chosen something else uh, but for the favorable accounting treatment. And so now that this favorable accounting treatment is gone, I think you'll see firms uh, will use what they think is the the very best form of compensation and not feel like uh, granting options has this accounting advantage that they simply can't pass up. Um, so I, I think you might see some shift away from options and toward granting stock and some other uh, use of, of performance measures, but uh, nothing drastic. 
Well, speaking of options, uh, these days they're almost synonymous with uh, corporate abuse and greed. Uh, how did they get so off track, uh, considering that they were, at least in the beginning, considered a way to reward uh, performance? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know as if I would use the the word off track. Um, I still think they're a very important uh, tool that that firms use to provide incentives and to provide pay. And you know, one thing to keep in mind is that um, you know, for public firms, you know, widely held public firms, we can easily see how you know a very large firm that's owned by you know hundreds of thousands or millions of shareholders might not have good control over the board and because they don't have good control over the board of directors the board of directors doesn't have good control over the ceo but if we look at organizations that are much more closely held they have you know very large shareholders block holders that own the big chunks of stock or even firms that are privately held so that they're not uh, widely held and and they don't have these sec rules and other things i mean they don't pay much differently uh, than the publicly traded firms that we see in terms of their use of options in terms of the level of pay and so I mean, I don't see – there's not a lot of evidence out there that uh, options are used primarily with firms that have bad governance or with firms that, that have abusive policies. Um, so I think what's gotten them – there's been a lot of bad press, clearly, on options over the last few years. I think the accounting scandals that we saw in the early 2000s were part of that. We saw executives that clearly did something something wrong at you know lots of firms like Enron and Tyco and you know some of these other places, HealthSouth and um, and so you know the, the there were accounting scandals that went on, um, and you know in, in most of those cases uh, the, the the litigation required some motivation on behalf of various executives to do various bad things. And so where do you point? Well, you say, well, what do these individuals get out of it? Nobody commits fraud just because it's enjoyable to commit fraud. They commit fraud because they think they're going to get something out of it. And then you look to the stock that they might have sold or options they might have exercised or things like that. Uh, and so that, I think, gave it some bad press. But those were just a, a few isolated cases. I mean, we didn't have tens of thousands of those scandals. And then I think this backdating thing has really crept in. And, and I think that uh, there are some some abuses there. And, and that is, you know, another can of worms that I think the options have to sort of the option proponents have to get themselves out of. How extensive do you think this backdating is? I mean, they've already named about 100 companies, I think, they suspect have done this. Um, is this in any way a defensible practice? Well, in terms of whether it's widespread or not, I mean, there have actually been quite a few studies. In addition to the the back the issue of backdating, and you know, when we're talking about backdating, we mean a, a firm that uh, you know, is getting ready to grant some options, and rather than granting them at today's stock price, uh, which is is often how they're granted, uh, they look back in time for a few months, and they look for a period of time when the stock price was low. And they say, okay, well, we'll assume that those options were granted two months ago when the stock price was lower. And so now the stock price is higher. So at the time we're granting them, they're actually in the money options as opposed to at the money options. Um, but there are other ways to, to, to play a similar game. And, and one is rather than backdate the options to simply uh, time the options, uh, spring load the options, some people, you know, it's often called, where you grant them just prior to some good news. So you know that there's good news coming out about the company. Uh, so you don't 
backdate them or change the date of the option. You, you grant them today, but you grant them right before some good news, so they pop into the, into the money in a few days. Or you know some bad news is coming out, and so you delay granting options until that bad news comes out, because clearly... You know, if you're granting options to an executive and they know that bad news is coming out, they're going to say, you know, don't give me those options today because I know that within a week they're going to be way out of the money because the bad news comes out. So firms can can play around with, with these options in various ways. Whether it's justified, um, you know, th- th- there's clearly an accounting issue, uh, an option that's granted in the money. Uh, backdated option is clearly one that is granted in the money, and the money options even in the 90s uh, before this recent change in accounting rule, those options needed to be treated as a business expense, uh, and and they weren't, and so you have an accounting issue there, uh, accounting violation, I should say. In addition, you have some disclosure issues. I mean, clearly there, there was a lack of transparency, and, and I think transparency is important. As to whether it would be in the firm's interest to do this, I think that there there are some some in some cases there are some some plausible reasons to do it. For example, Microsoft admitted to doing it uh, for a while uh, back in the '90s, uh, before they were told, I guess, by their auditor that they shouldn't be shouldn't be doing this or should account for it differently if they are. And and their argument was, if we give uh, hundreds of employees these options uh, in a given month. And the employee across the hall got them when the stock price was was twenty dollars a share, and you got them when the stock price was twenty five dollars a share, and you got them just a day later or three days later. It's going to create a lot of disgruntled employees for no seemingly good reason. So Microsoft had a practice of granting options at the lowest stock price during a month, so that all the employees hired during that month would get options at the same stock so price. Is that legal then? To do that? Well, it's all legal. There's nothing illegal about so this backdating scandal. There, there's nothing illegal about um, granting in the money options. Um, the the backdating, uh, as far as I know, there's nothing illegal about that either. Uh, but if you do it, you're supposed to disclose it uh, that you're doing it, and you're also supposed to account for it properly. So it's uh, an accounting violation. Not it's an accounting and a disclosure disclosure, disclosure violation. violation. Okay. Yes, I think that's right. And and so it'll be interesting to see. There's certainly going to be a lot of litigation surrounding these backdating cases, um, and it'll be interesting to see how those how those arguments play out as to you know how the attorneys are going to get involved, how they're going to try to come up with some estimate of damages. Are, going to, are they going to try these in a criminal basis, or are they going to try them in a in a civil basis? And if it's if it's a civil case, they have to establish some damages and and then trying to figure out you know who was damaged and how much was damaged. But clearly, if I'm an executive. Um, one of the problems with – well, I shouldn't say problem, but one of the issues related to options is that um, when they're granted and when the stock price drops, if the stock price goes up and the options become more valuable, they continue to provide incentives and they continue to, to keep the employees uh, working hard. But when the stock price drops, uh, the options lose some of their incentive effects and – um, so there's plenty of academic work, theoretical and empirical, that argues that granting in-the-money options is a, 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 a better way to provide incentives than granting at-the-money or out-of-the-money options. And so you know, granting in-the-money options would have, a, I think, a useful business purpose in some cases. Restricted stock is like granting an option with a, a zero exercise price, so it's way in the money. Uh, but again, it's, if it's going to be done, it should be accounted for and disclosed properly. Well, you know, one of the reasons why this whole issue of executive compensation uh, gets uh, 
uh, such visceral reactions from people is because of the tremendous discrepancy between CEO pay and the uh, pay of, uh, you know, lesser mortals. Uh, some estimations, uh, some estimates say that the typical CEO makes uh, 369 times as much as the typical U.S. worker, and others say it's closer to 179 times. Uh, do you know what's the correct number? And in either case, do you think either of these ratios is defensible? Yeah, I mean, the the right number will certainly depend on uh, what your what your group the group of CEOs you're looking at is so that the in the in the numerator of those ratios is CEO pay and the denominator is typical worker pay and typical worker pay doesn't change very much across different firms um so if we're looking at a, a sample of S&P 500 firms the typical worker is not going to be paid much differently than for a smaller firm but the CEO makes a lot more so i guess the point i'm making is that these ratios i would guess uh, are for a, a firms of a very large size where the CEO is making eight to ten million dollars and the typical worker might make thirty or forty thousand dollars and so you can easily get up to a ratio of two three hundred uh, but for the typical CEO as I indicated earlier the pay is about two to three million dollars and if the typical worker makes thirty or forty thousand dollars then then I think the ratio for the the typical CEO across all the thousands of publicly traded firms is probably a hundred or even less. Um, as to whether it's a relevant or important comparison, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I've been asked that question a lot. And I mean, to me, it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, comparing the, the, the pay of a carpenter to the pay of a computer programmer. Uh, they're in different industries. They have different skills. They don't compete with each other. Um, and so it, it's not clear to me why the change in the the pay for a, a typical, say, factory worker or a typical, you know, lower level employee, uh, why that would, why the, the economic forces, the supply and demand for those individuals over time would be all that closely tied to the supply and demand for, for CEOs. And so I, I don't know what, I mean, you, you hear that cited a lot and it certainly sounds like a big number and it gets people excited, but, but I'm not really sure what to make of that ratio. Have, have efforts by Congress to rein in executive pay actually inspired companies to find loopholes in the law uh, and then offer even higher exec comp packages than before? I, I think there have been stories of, uh, about how golden parachutes, deferred compensation, and high pension payment programs um, kind of lead to this, this kind of um, loophole finding. Should Congress stay out of this area? Well, I mean, um, I, I think that the reason Congress gets involved in a lot of these issues, uh, there's a variety of reasons. I mean, some of them political, some of them maybe economic, some of them. I mean, the issue of executive pay and, and how much should be paid in the form of the pay, I mean, that's been debated um, by academics, by practitioners, by firms and executives. It's it's a little hard for – given that I don't think uh, people that spend all day every day working on it have figured it out. It's hard for me to see how Congress knows you know, whether a million dollars or two million dollars is the right amount of pay. Um, now – if, if Congress is, is putting more scrutiny on these things, it's hard to see why additional scrutiny would lead to higher pay. But I think what sometimes happens is that um, by putting caps on certain things, uh, what you do is, is maybe in some sense give, a, give safe harbor 
to go to those caps. So 10 or 12 years ago, Congress said uh, salary, non-performance-based pay above a million dollars for any individual will not get a tax deduction. Uh, And so then you could imagine that people say, well, I should be paid at least a million dollars so that I get right up to that. And so for some of these severance packages, uh, there are tax rules that say they can't be more than three times or two times cash pay. Uh, and so then maybe there's a tendency to move up to that cap. Um, so, Let me ask one final question. We'll okay. Cut. Um, doesn't sound like you expect compensation practices to change much in the next year, nor do you think they should. Is that an overstatement? No, I, I don't expect them to change that much. Uh, I mean, it's certainly the case that, that over the last... 10 to 15 years, pay has risen uh, quite a bit for, for CEO and executive pay. And at the same time, the amount of scrutiny that these pay packages has been under has written, risen just as fast or even faster. I mean, the, the press scrutiny, the political scrutiny, regulatory scrutiny, tremendous scrutiny on these pay packages, and yet the pay packages continue to rise. And so what that tells me is that there's some pretty strong economic forces that are keeping these pay levels where they are. Um, and so I don't see anything drastic happening over the next few years, even with additional disclosure or additional – I mean, these are just continuations, I think, of of the trend we've seen in scrutiny on these things. And, and hopefully what we'll do is we'll you know, eliminate more of the abuses – uh, and let these firms hire and contract and provide incentives uh, to their CEO so they can maximize shareholder value. Uh, well, it, it's very interesting that we have done surveys that show that about 13% of Knowledge at Wharton subscribers are CEOs. And I'm sure what you said is going to be music to all their ears. <laughs> and as for the remaining uh, readers, uh, let's hope they all become uh, CEOs as quickly as possible. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming here today. I really right, enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks for having me. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.